welcome to the Defender Podcast, a resource to help mobilize and equip the body of Christ to manifest the gospel to orphans and vulnerable children. This podcast is a ministry of Lifeline Children's Services, and I'm your host, Herbie Newell. Today is September the 4th, 2019. I'm coming to you from Birmingham, Alabama. Well, recently I had the opportunity to sit down with pastor and seminarian and friend, Tony Morita. Uh, Tony is the author of several books, and he and Kimberly uh, Marita, along with their five children, planted a Mago Day church in the Triangle of North Carolina, the Raleigh-Durham area. So excited to get to hear from Tony, and Tony was able to travel with us about a month ago to the country of Columbia to help with a pastor's training, and I know you will be enriched by hearing this interview with Tony Marita. But before we do, I want to remind you about the Defender Bible Study Podcast, because God's Word is the foundation of our ministry. We have started these new podcasts for you to help anchor you in God's Word and us in God's Word as we defend the fatherless. So we want you to invite you to join us for our new podcast, The Defender Bible Study. You can subscribe to The Defender Bible Study today and join us every Monday morning for a time focused on the study of Scripture and how we can pray together for the most vulnerable around the world. So look for The Defender Bible Study Podcast wherever you're listening to podcasts. Subscribe today and make sure you don't miss our Monday morning Bible study on the Defender Bible study along with our time and call to prayer. Well, it is a privilege to be joined by Tony Marita. And Tony is a dear friend of our ministry and pastor of Imago Day Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. And for many of you who are familiar with Dr. Rick at Lifeline Children's Services, Tony and Dr. Rick served at Temple Baptist Church in Hattiesburg, Mississippi together. And while they were there almost 10 years ago, they wrote the book Orphanology. And I know that many who have entered into this world of orphan care got their start in this, uh, this work by either reading Adopted for Life by Dr. Russell Moore or Orphanology by Tony Morita and Dr. Rick. And so we're just grateful to have Tony. Tony and Kimberly uh, have five children, four which they adopted from Ukraine, and then a little boy that they adopted as well from Ethiopia. Uh, But precious children, and believe it or not, it's hard to believe how long that Tony and Kimberly have been on this journey that they are about to, their kids are getting older, and uh, soon will be empty nesters. But so, Tony, a lot, of, a lot of our listeners are familiar with your story as an adoptive parent, but just give us a, a quick recap of your story and kind of do bring us up to date on where you and Kimberly and the family are today. Yeah, man, great to be with you, brother. Um, yeah, so we um, got into the adoption world uh, really just through um, our own study of the scriptures um, and through interacting with some of our friends uh, who had adopted um, and, uh, uh, family members as well. And, um, I, yeah, it was about, gosh, 11, 12 years ago, we began the process and, uh, we're, uh, we were eligible, um, to, uh, and expected to adopt two kids under the age of five, went to Ukraine and found a sibling group, uh, of four, ages four, six, seven, and nine, and, uh, agreed to adopt them. And so we went from zero kids to four kids in a short amount of time. Um, and then after roughly a year, um, thought we had the capacity for one more. So we uh, entered the process again and it w- didn't take as long, um, during that, that time. Um, and we, we adopted from Ethiopia, adopted Joshua, who was five. 
So now that the kids, we have five teenagers now from ages 14, soon to be 15 up through 19. Uh, Josh was the youngest. He starts his, high, his freshman year of high school uh, this year. And you're right. We got one out of high school. We've got one that's like two months away from being finished from high school. One that's about a year and a half and then a sophomore and a freshman. So yeah, empty nest. I don't know what that's going to be like or what that's going to entail, but uh, it is on the horizon. <laughs> well, and, and that's even, you know, part of what I'd love for you to touch on is even what you and Kimberly entered into thinking about adoption from Ukraine. And, you know, a lot of people who don't know your story, you had done a lot of teaching at the Kiev Theological Seminary. So Ukraine was a, a country that was on your heart. The people were on your heart. And you kind of go in thinking, we're going to get these two kids under five and you bring home these four sim- precious siblings. And and now they are, they're all in high school or, or out of high school. How has kind of your view of adoption changed from what you first thought when you and Kimberly first entered the process to now that you've, you've raised these children to young adulthood? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, we often say this is the hardest thing we've ever done, harder than planting a church and you know, dealing with other life issues, but we would do it all over again in a heartbeat because, um, you know, there's nothing more valuable than human life. And we believe children deserve a family and uh, need family. Um, and despite all the hardships and we've had, we've had our share of them. Um, uh, we, we are really glad the Lord led us in this direction. Um, and has even been able to use our story to inspire others to, to adopt as well. And so, um, it's not the story that we thought, uh, you know, it's not the story we would have written, but we, we truly believe it's the one that the Lord has written for us. Um, and I think what's changed, uh, there hasn't been a lot that in terms of theology, none of that's changed. The perspective hasn't changed. I think what the, the biggest challenge for us in parenting was dealing with disappointment or unmet expectations. Um, and I think we knew uh, adoption was going to be hard. Um, but it's, I think it's hard on different levels and uh, obviously every child is different. And so you're going to have my story is not anyone else's story because my kids aren't their kids. Right. Um, but, um, I think for us, we, we dealt with, um, the reality of the, the fact that we are parenting kids who've experienced trauma and that will, will forever uh, impact them. And because of that trauma that they've dealt with, there are certain things that they do or don't do that um, has shocked me, you know, or like, why would you do that? Or, or why wouldn't you, uh, why wouldn't you do that in school, for example? Why, why would you take a C when you could have a, have a, have a B, but you don't really care that you have a C, you know, like there were certain things that Kimberly and I were good at, you know, and, you know, we excelled in that you see your kids not excelling in or being good at their ambition is different. Their interests are different, their hobbies. Um, and some of that can be a real disappointment to you. If you have in your mind, the American dream for your kid, um, and the assumption that every kid after high school, for example, goes to college and gets a degree and joins this great career. When we, we had to sacrifice that once we realized our kids are not, some of them at least, are not great in school. Um, 
They're not great socially. Um, so what is it that's biblical and what is it that's the American dream, right? Nothing wrong with the American dream. If your kid does all that, amen. But is that necessary for them to be a faithful follower of Christ uh, and a good church member and a productive citizen? No, it's not. So if, you know, your kid wants to do landscaping for the rest of his life straight out of high school, but he loves Christ and he loves the church, I'm saying amen to that. And that's kind of where we're at with James, for example, our oldest is no real interest, but he's a hard worker. Um, he, um, you know, he, he may have trade school or something like that in his future, but I think it's some of those expectations that you have, uh, and the assumption that there is a one-to-one correspondence with adoptive, adoptive children and biological children. And while there are a number of similarities because they're human beings, there's also some real differences. And, and, uh, things that will, will always be present in your, in your parenting, um, that you're going to have to deal with. And, you know, people talk about secondary trauma, that, that trauma that spills over onto you and the fatigue, the compassion fatigue that's involved in the day to day, you know, grind of parenting, uh, adopted children. Um, and some of that, some of the challenges with these children, they don't even know some of the things that they do because it's, uh, uh, the, they've been affected physiologically in such a way, psychologically, that there are patterns uh, in their in their life that are just there, and patterns that are not there, you know. And so I think it's it's been a process for us to learn how to be patient, you know, how to set realistic expectations, you know, how to establish what are the real goals that we need to be aiming for, and and let's celebrate those things, you know, um, and let's not try to put. Uh, you know, the expectations, uh, that other parents have for their kids, uh, and, and make those the, the rule and the law for, for our kids, you know? Yeah, that, that's, that's such, that's such great advice. And I know a lot of those themes are those themes that are in your book, Ordinary, as well, that, that, that to be a follower of Christ, we don't have to set some trailblazing, but we can be a, a follower of Christ that's making a difference in the world just by what we do each and every day, the ordinary of life. And, and I really feel like that's a lot of what I've seen you lead Amago Day in Raleigh is to say, we're going to be the light of Christ wherever we're planted, wherever the Lord has us. We're going to make a difference in our community and a difference around the world. And, and I know that your adoption journey has even played out a lot in the way you've led your church. Amago Day has, has been a huge outspoken voice for human trafficking and against human trafficking and speaking out for justice, but by staying rooted in deep theology. So I know for a lot of pastors that might be listening, you know, they kind of see this, this idea of justice as being contrary to deep, reformed, good, systematic theology. But I love some of the things that you say about, no, these, these are married together. Talk about why you see that good, deep theology actually bears itself out in justice. That's a great question. So, well, I think um, part of the, the, the modern debate on social justice really, really misses uh, the big E on the I chart. That I just don't think um, we have to talk about this in political uh uh, in political terminology, or th- we have to, uh, you know, we, 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 we don't need to assume that this is some slippery slope into liberalism as many people think it is. And the reason I think that is because to me, social, 
social justice, orphan care, it all is under the broader umbrella of loving neighbor. It's, it's basically second commandment issues, right? And so for a person to say we shouldn't be doing a second commandment, <laughs> I got a problem with that, you know, uh, like, and we should, um, that's never a step in the wrong direction to go love my neighbor. And, and to think, think that that's somehow a slippery slope uh, is just, it's, it's actually the opposite. It's, the slippery slope is not obeying what's clear in the Bible, which is, which is loving our neighbor. And so um, I think the, the person who needs to be in defense is not the person doing orphan care or justice, like, why are you guys doing that? person in defense should be the person who's saying that there's a problem with doing second commandment. Um, so I, I think um, the, the, the thing about theology and social justice that's so important, you know, it's important for a number of reasons. When you think, think about your motivation for doing it, we're not earning salvation. So we, we have to fuse theology with neighbor love because there, there are many groups out there who believe that this is somehow a, a works-based system, you know, to get into heaven. So that has to be clarified, you know, as we're doing orphan care. We're doing this as a fruit of uh, justification, right? Not as the root of justification. It's the, the outgrowth of grace, the overflow of grace in our lives. Um, and then we also um, theologically... Um, have to have to keep the two together um, because there are some in the justice world that make everything a justice issue that we would actually argue is sinful, you know? So uh, I, you know, our position, uh, our, our theology, for example, uh, promotes marriage between husband and wife, man and woman. But there are some people who have a radically different view of marriage, for example, but they make that a justice issue, you know, or you can make a number of issues, social justice issues. And so I get the, the, the kind of hesitancy toward adopting that language. And so I don't really use it for that reason. I, I'm not, I don't necessarily have a problem with the phrase social justice. But for me, I like speaking more of biblical justice or um, I like gospel justice, sort of a phrase that um, I, I like to use, or, or again, neighbor love, things that are, are making sure we're getting our view of neighbor love and justice uh, from the scriptures. Um, and so I think it's essential that we keep theology married to neighbor love so that we can make sure the gospel's clarified and so that we make sure the things that we're promoting in justice is actually something that's on God's heart, that God is behind. Um, and I think practically how this looks in our church is we don't do a ton of series, for example, on justice or orphan care. We, we preach through books of the Bible, and when there are subjects that come up, uh, we, we seek to apply these issues within the flow of, of weekly preaching. And so people hear about orphan care regularly at Imago Day, just because we bump up against things uh, in the text, like, you know, again, loving neighbor or caring for the weak or the oppressed or whatever. And that, there's, that's a natural way to, to talk about it in the course of our, our regular preaching uh, and regular teaching. Of course, we have ministries built out, and there are special classes they can, they can go to, and there are always other discipleship avenues for them to learn more. But um, I, I think if you're systematically working through the Bible, you, you can't avoid talking about these issues um, because they're so they're so present. Like we're doing the minor prophets right now; we're spending a week on each of the twelve minor prophets, and I mean Micah and Amos. Uh, I mean, part of the rebuke has to do with the lack of attention on the, the oppressed, right? 
Uh, and so if you're, if you're working through these books, you've got to, you're going to be skipping a lot of stuff, right? If you don't touch on it. <laughs> well, and I know that's even a theme, you know, many know that you are, are huge in church planning. You've taught it, you've planted churches. Imago Day is a church plant. Imago Day has had the opportunity to plant other churches. You know, just recently, you and I were with Brother Drew Rayner in Columbia together, the country Columbia. And, uh, you know, Drew is a, is a young man that has planted a church off of Imago Day or replanted a church out of Imago Day. But one of the things that, that has been the pattern is all of these churches have, it's, it's been placed that there's an importance in neighbor love or gospel-driven justice. Why do you think that's such an important piece of a healthy church? And how would you advise people of existing churches to begin to make it a part of their, their church community and, and their, their, their body? Yeah. I think in many ways, um, church planting is, um, if you're planting a healthy church, you're planting a missional church, it, in the long run, it, it's, a, it's a justice project in some ways because why are we planning a church? Well, we're planning a church because there's no witness in that particular area. Um, and because there's no witness, chances are there, there are a lot of, uh, there are a lot of needs in that area. Right. And so if we're planning a healthy church with healthy leaders that have a good theology of, 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 of the church of, of mission, then, uh, man, that for a hundred, for a hundred years, they could be doing orphan care in that, that region, in that area. They could be caring for the poor. They could be doing a number of things, right? So, um, we're, we're planting to do evangelism, absolutely, but we're also, you know, planting because we want to serve, serve that part of the community or city. Um, I think when it comes to uh, established churches, um, to me, the big issue is, getting your orphan care ministry in alignment with your church's overall vision and make it part of your church's culture. You're right. So often you have this situation in churches where you have one or two people that are passionate about orphan care and they can kind of run this little maverick ministry over here, but it doesn't have the support of the pastors and the leaders of the church. And it's never talked about from the, from the pulpit. And so you got the little Mavericks and they're passionate about it and they're driving the pastor crazy and pastor doesn't know what to do with them. And it's just not a good situation. Right. And so I, it, but if you understand orphan care again, under this idea of great commandment and under, under great commission, even right. We want to make disciples of orphans. We want them to, to come to love Christ and follow him. Uh, and if you look at the number of orphans worldwide, I don't know what the number is now, but it's something like the, it would be the seventh or eighth largest country in the world. And so if you want to make disciples of all nations, that includes a vast number of orphans, you know? And so in every church that I know, evangelical church, man, they would affirm, or at least on paper, the great commission and great commandment. Somehow they have to learn to see orphan care underneath those broad concepts and really make it part of, of the church. Uh, part of their mission, part of their culture. If they can do that, then I think the next step would be to to simply start small, to to start some basic avenue for people to to do it. Uh, you know, and it could be anything from partnering with an organization like you guys. It could be you know partnering with local foster care. It could be a number of things. Um, but often uh, churches try to do too much when they start new initiatives. I believe. We're, we get very ambitious. Um, and so I would say, you know, try not to just 
eliminate the orphan crisis uh, from your church alone. <laughs> but why don't you just do one little thing and just see what happens from, from starting small. And um, that, that's what we did at Temple, uh, Rick and I. We just, we just started teaching it. You know, I, I would bring it up in sermons. And, and I remember the, the first night we hit James 127, and I just said, I don't know what we should do as a church. Um, let's, but let's just pray. We pray that the Lord will uh, lead us in some direction. And so something even simple like that, you know, um, I often share the story of Spurgeon. In fact, it's in orphanology where he just told the church, we should be doing more. We got a lot of money. We should be doing more. Let's pray that the Lord will give us a new work. And out of that prayer meeting, you know, they ended up building an orphanage and Spurgeon cared for uh, tons of orphans, many of whom, by the way, ended up at his pastor's college as well, which is just a beautiful story. So I just think it's, it's, you got to put it in alignment and, and then give people avenues to, to do it. Um, and once you start small, I think you, you start to see the snowball effect of, you know, this is a big, broad network. And so you begin to meet people and build relationships and get new ideas and you're off and running at that point. Yeah. And, and I think something, even looking at Spurgeon, if you look at those heroes of the faith, those, those missionaries from a hundred, 150, 200 years ago, almost every single one of their stories intersect with the most vulnerable. And it's the orphan, it's the widow, it's the stranger, it's the poor, it's the needy. Uh, you know, Ashley and I love to read missionary biographies to our kids. And we talk about Hudson Taylor and everything he did in China. Hudson Taylor was extremely engaged with orphan boys in China. You know, you, you go through Spurgeon and obviously George Mueller. All of these missionaries and men of faith were working with, uh, as a church, planting these churches to think about how to practice neighbor love. But then as a dad, take it, take it to the next step further. So we all want our churches to do this, but it really starts within our home. How do you as a dad disciple your family to show gospel-driven hospitality and to show justice in your family? Hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I remember one day driving Joshua to, to baseball practice and he said, uh, Papa, I want to adopt from every country. And he, he started rattling off. He said, I want to adopt from China, Ukraine, Ethiopia, and Kentucky. He's like, he's like Kentucky's a country, right? <laughs> I was like, yeah, kind of. Um, and I just, I, that really was a really memorable moment because he had already developed a heart for orphans and he'd only been in our house two or three years. Um, and I think the, the number one thing we can do for our kids is just to, to show them the gospel, show them the narrative of, of, uh, of what God has done for us in Christ and bringing us into the family and how that grace should motivate us to be gracious, to be generous, to be hospitable, just the way God has been hospitable with us, just the way he's brought us into his kingdom. Um, and so uh, it, it sounds very basic, but really the, the gospel is the tool that we're using to disciple our own kids um, because not only do they need to, to know what it means to trust Christ and follow him, but it's also that which transforms them into being a very gracious, generous, hospitable person. And it's the same gospel I need in my own heart uh, when, when I'm prone to be self-absorbed and, you know, greedy um, and be, you know, driven by selfish ambition. It, it's the gospel that, that reminds me of, of uh, the need to, to be humble, to, to, to do justice and love mercy um, just the way Christ has for me. Um, and so with that in mind, um, 
we, we, we teach it and then we try to model it, you know, like this is, this is the first time in about six years, someone else hasn't lived with us <laughs> in addition to our, our big crew. Um, and with, that's about to change in about a month we're, we're going to have another house guest, but, um, and we use our house a lot. Um, we, we have, um, through the years been able to provide respite care, for example, for those who, um, are doing aftercare, uh, human trafficking, aftercare work, just, you know, we, we, we have, we've taken in uh, some of those survivors uh, for a weekend to give the workers, uh, a break. We've done a number of other, you know, uh, uh, we used our homes in a number of other ways. Uh, but I think that's one of the most basic ways that people today can do neighbor love that they can do, uh, or orphan care, you know, in many ways, foster care is hospitality, isn't it? It's, uh, safe, safe families is, is hospitality. Um, so we, we want to, to be a good steward of our home and not view it as some castle, you know, that no one can enter into, but rather see it as a place the Lord has given us to enjoy. Yes. But also the place to bless the world and, and bless others the way he's cared for us. Um, and then, you know, another part of that is just, we love bringing in, um, uh, people to, to, to live with us so that they can see hospitality. I mean, we, we've had a number of single guys and girls through the years live with us. Um, and many of them have come from non-Christian homes and they haven't seen a, um, uh, you know, a healthy marriage and B, they, they haven't really seen the home be used in a, in a way that's redemptive and, um, and we're by no means perfect in these things, but the, the impact that that's had, I have to believe is, is, has been really, really big, you know, in their lives as they watch it. Um, so, um, yeah, I would just encourage Christians out there to, again, when they're thinking about, you know, first steps, that's, that's an obvious one. Like, is your house ready? You know, are you, are you open to that? Uh, and if so, ask for the Lord to, to use you there. Um, and man, we just have seen lives changed in our house just around simple conversations with, uh, people in and out all the time. Um, and, uh, even tonight we got people coming over and, um, that'll happen three or four times in a given week if I'm here, you know, in town. Uh, and we love it. I mean, and it's, we also recognize this is partly one of our spiritual gifts and that's not for everybody, but I do think that the, the mandate of being a good steward of all that we have is for everybody. Right. And, and being generous and hospitable is for every Christian. Um, so yeah, those are some, those are some things, man, in, in the Merida world. Well, I know Tony, obviously you, you stay really busy planting a church, leading a church, discipling men in and around Raleigh and, and really around the country, uh, obviously writing, not just the books that are for sale, but the expositor series. You've been a huge contributor of that. Um, and you're just a busy guy, but, but I also know people that know, you know, how intentional you are with Kimberly and your family. Talk about just as a dad, balancing the busyness of what you do during the day with being intentional with your family, your wife first, your kids second, and why it's so important today for dads to be intentional at home. Yeah, well, I, one, I'm blessed with a, a job that gives me flexibility. I have a really good team around me. Um, everything doesn't rise and fall on me at a Mago day. Um, I also recognize that a lot of guys outside of the church world, dads, um, don't have the flexibility I have. So I, some of what I'm able to do is because of, of privilege. 
Um, but uh, one thing that we've just said as a discipline through the years is I don't work in the evening. When I go home, I don't work. Um, the, the only thing I might do is read. If there's a downtime, I, I will read some books in the evening. Um, one, I don't want to work anymore. I'm done. I'm done with work. Um, and so if I've got a lot to do, I get up early. I don't do it late at night. So that's just me. That's not, you know, a law. That's not me being more spiritual necessarily, but it's just, uh, that's the way we've operated. So what that's allowed me to do is go home um, and have dinner. I normally go to the gym uh, two or three days a week and on the way back from, from uh, the church building. And, and then I'm home 5, 5.30, 6. And we eat dinner, and that's kind of family time. It's just all the time. Sometimes our kids have to do homework, and so it's only dinner. You know, maybe it's a light. It could be I'm coaching baseball when that's in season. Um, but we just try to do fun stuff, um, uh, you know, shooting pool, uh, you know, uh, board games. Um, and then when, when I do travel, Kimberly's really good at saying, you should take this kid on that trip. You should take this kid on that trip. And she's really, really good at telling me, especially with the girls, because uh, we have two boys, three girls, uh, this girl needs your attention, you know. Um, so we'll go on a date, you know, I will plan that and go somewhere. So Kimberly is, is wonderful. She also signs off on all my travel as well as our executive pastor. So I don't, you know, just go everywhere. Um, I, I travel a lot, but it's governed and I, I try to, to involve, uh, you know, family as much as possible. And when I do youth camps, you know, they come with me. Um, um, and if, if I ever sense that this is, you know, traveling is, forming a problem in the family i'm i'm done with traveling it's that simple I, but i i haven't sensed that um you know there have been times where the kids are oh man you leaving again um but but that's been them just sort of poking and prodding um and i'm i'm really careful when i get back home or even before i go we do we do special stuff you know so all that to say i've just tried to to be discerning and um, you know, see whose love tank needs filled up and, and give attention there. Um, so that, that's our evenings, you know, dinner, hang out, maybe watch, watch a show. Um, weekends, I don't work on Saturday. I've never done, I, so I don't do sermon prep late in the week. I finish I finished Sunday sermon today at noon and that's pretty typical. I, I write on Monday and Tuesday largely to get my biggest burden off of me. <laughs> and then to free me up the rest of the week to, to do other things, be available. Um, so that also just allows me on Saturday to just be at home and hang. That's normally the day I cook. We grill out a lot. Um, and uh, it's just, uh, you know, when football season's on, it's it's that. It's, you know, just having fun as a, as a, as a crew. Um, and then Sundays, you know, I'm up early. Kimberly's out before I am because she's in the band. So I normally have all the kids uh, coming to IDC with me, and they have to stay for both services. But they never complain. They love they love the church. We're very grateful for that. Um, and uh, Sunday we eat, and then we take a nap. That that's part of the Sunday experience <laughs> we built in from day one when we brought them home from Ukraine. We said, "My kids, we go to church, and then we take a nap." That's just what we do on Sunday, and uh, we, we live by that rule, man. Uh, yeah. <laughs> And and I know as a dad who travels a lot too, it's always hard when you're leaving and your kids are poking like, you got to leave again. But actually, my wife is always gracious to remind me that they wouldn't, if, if you weren't, 
if you weren't engaging with them when you're here, they wouldn't be sad when you leave. Um, and so it's just a good reminder, even though they're crying or even though they're upset or they're disappointed, that, uh, that I, the barometer for knowing I'm doing my job is if they actually grieve my presence missing from the home, it means that I'm being present. And so, so important, so important for dads to be uh, present. And so uh, just, just in closing, and I know this is a, a zinger to, to close on, but I do think it's so important, even when we talk about discipleship, you know, your own father has an amazing story of following Christ. And, and that, that obviously had a trickle down effect to you and now to the next generation. And really when we get engaged in justice from a human trafficking victim to adoption or to foster care, we're entering into the story to potentially change the story of faith for an entire generation. Can you just touch on a little bit of that journey personally from your own perspective? Yeah. Yeah. So dad was um, uh, born and raised in Detroit. I come from a long line of uh, factory workers in uh, Detroit, Michigan. He met my mom. She was from Kentucky. Um, They moved to Kentucky when I was small. So I I was raised there, but all my dad's family was uh, in Michigan. And um, there was some, uh, some of the extended family were, were believers. They were, you know, at least religious but the vast majority of them, including my dad, was just irreligious, not hostile against Christianity, but certainly not interested. And so uh, I became a Christian in college and um, I was a baseball player and my, my dad was had been my baseball coach growing up. So he, he even he took his vacation days to come watch me play in college. You know, uh, he would get there before the team bus would get there. And uh, he was a good man, you know, a really good man, a good coach. Um, you know, my, I remember we, I never even brought a, an R-rated movie into my house as a, as a kid. And my dad was not a Christian. He was a, he was a very moral guy. Um, and, but when I decided I was going to seminary, he thought I'd lost my mind. Um, I had been offered a job to be a high school teacher and a coach. And he thought that was the greatest job in the world. And um, it was a, it, it really was difficult for me and my dad after I became a Christian because he, he wasn't interested in the gospel um, and um, and actually was getting more hostile the more I would bring it up. So it was through uh, God by his spirit, you know, and I don't know what all was going on in dad's heart and mind, but my sister had adopted two little boys from Ethiopia. And she later learned that one of them had three other siblings. And so over the next couple of years, she was able to get the other three. So we both have a similar story. We went to get two and now we have five. Um, and she has an adopted son as well, or biological son as well. So my dad was seeing all this in my sister because he li- they live nearby each other. Um, and, you know, my sister's told dad, hey, you can come visit because he just loved these boys, man. Uh but she said, we go to church and she went to a big church in Lexington that we go to church on Saturday night. Um, my sister was a nurse. And so that Saturday night was the best night, it's best time for them. And anyway, dad would start going. And, um, I, I don't know again, how all of it worked out, but within about a year or so, uh, and we had adopted our kids by then. Um, I just sensed my dad really softening and, um, it, it's often, I think it's, 
I don't know if this is, again, exactly what's going on in, in his heart, but I know what Steve Timmis says is true, that oftentimes people need to see uh, what the gospel looks like before they believe the actual gospel, you know, that it's sometimes it's the Christian community that's more attractive than the Christian gospel to the unbeliever because they're getting to see what the fruit of the gospel does, you right, in, in, in life. And I, I don't know if that was the, the, the thing that won my dad over the most, but I know he was seeing that sort of thing. And he was becoming softer. And, um, and then he just struck up a conversation and said, hey, I, I would like to uh, start going to church. And I was like shocked, you know. And he started visiting churches. He found a church that was teaching the Bible. And uh, the weekend we were moving to Raleigh to plant this church, we, we drove to Kentucky first, and I baptized my 59-year-old dad. And um, he's now read all of our commentaries. In fact, every time we get a new commentary, I have to send it to dad. Um, he's taught some Sunday school classes. Um, he had a heart attack a couple years ago that gave us a big scare. But to know that he's secure in, in God's grace was um, such a comfort. And um, he really is, you know, like my best friend. And um, it's uh, it's been really cool. He podcasts me every week. and. Uh, he podcasts our other church planters. Those are his other favorite preachers. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, man, it's, it's, I, I think adoption really can have a powerful impact on the watching world. Um, and, and we should be doing these things. I mean, this is not heroic Christianity, right? This is ordinary Christianity to, to be caring for the, the least of these. That's, you know, uh, showing off the, the love of our Father, the kind of love He's shown us. This should be, this should be normal Christianity. Amen. Well, Tony, I thank you so much for joining us. We're grateful for just your faithfulness in preaching the gospel, uh, for planting churches, and for pouring into uh, future leaders of the church through the seminary that you help lead. And so we're just grateful for you, brother, and grateful for the way that you and Kimberly live your lives and live it on display so that others can, can see the example of a life that's been changed by the gospel. Amen. Amen. Thanks, brother. Appreciate you, brother. I'm grateful for your friendship. You too. Thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for listening to the Defender Podcast. If you enjoy making this podcast a part of your weekly routine, we'd love for you to take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the Defender Podcast to make it easier for more people to find. For more information how you and your church can partner with Lifeline, visit us at lifelinechild.org. If you want to connect with me, please visit herbienewell.com. Follow us at Lifeline on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter by searching for Lifeline Child. You can email us directly at info at lifelinechild.org. Beloved, will you allow God to use the gospel through you to impact the life of a child? Please contact us because we are here to defend the fatherless. We'll see you again next week for the Defender Podcast.